over the many years that I've had the privilege of ministering, I think I've had more requests that I should teach the book of Revelation than anything else. Well, perhaps that's not quite correct. The most oft-repeated request is, please don't preach quite as long. But as far as subject material is concerned, the main request has been, when are you going to preach the book of Revelation? And I have made two promises to the congregation. The, the first promise was, I will preach it before I quit. And the second promise was, I will preach it when I've figured out what it's all about. Now, I'm rather regretting that second promise, because now that I have decided, and I'll tell you why in a minute, to do a brief series on the book of Revelation, people are going to assume that I've figured it all out. That I have not done. That doesn't worry me in the least, neither has anybody else. It is a strange and mysterious book. But it is something that it is part of Scripture, and it is something that we can benefit from greatly as we spend time in it. Now, does that mean that I am about to quit preaching? No. I didn't say I will preach Revelation and then quit. I said I will preach it before I quit. And I haven't quit yet, so this is still before. So all that by way of explanation, we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation. Let me read to you the opening verses of Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now that is what we call the prologue, or the introduction to this whole book. I want you to notice, first of all, that the title Revelation, which is given to this last book of the Bible, is simply placed there because it is the first word in the original manuscript of this document. In other words, it was written in Greek. The Greek word is apocalypsis, and that means an unveiling or a revelation. And so the first word is taken as the title of the book. This word apocalypsis has found its way into our English language as apocalypse or apocalyptic. But the thing that's of particular interest to us is that around about the time of Jesus, perhaps 200 years before him and 100 years after him, it, there was a very popular genre of writing in the Middle East, particularly among the Jewish people, called apocalyptic. And Revelation is a classic example of it. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament is another classic example of it. Apocalyptic was full of symbols. It was full of imagery, very dramatic graphic imagery, all kinds of monsters and fires and earthquakes and storms and, uh, and, and very, very dramatic things. And these were all intended to convey a message through symbolism. So as we approach Revelation... We recognize right off that it is apocalyptic literature, which means that it is symbolic and will require careful study and careful interpretation. However, we notice in the introduction to this scripture that the book of Revelation is also described in verse 3 as a prophecy. It is an apocalyptic piece of literature. It is also a prophecy. Now, there's a difference between the two. The prophetic ministry was something with which the people of Israel were very, very familiar. 
Down through the centuries, God had sent his prophets, and their job was to listen to the voice of God and then to stand before the people and predicate what they had to say with the words, Thus saith the Lord. Now, sometimes there was a predictive element to what they were saying. But we must not just assume that when we hear of a prophecy, that a prophecy is all about prediction. The prophets were always speaking to their contemporaries, but what they were saying to their contemporaries was relevant to their contemporary situation, but often it was relevant in the light of what they were predicting in the future. Now, this is helpful. Because as we approach the book of Revelation, we recognize that we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, which is full of symbolism, which requires interpretation, but it is also a prophetic message, which means that God is sending someone to speak to his people in order that they might understand what it is that the Lord has to say to them, and it will include predictive elements. The third thing, however, that we notice about the book of Revelation is that starting with verse 4, where we simply have the word John, and then to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and then grace and peace to you from him, etc., etc., immediately we read that this is familiar because we've read other epistles in the New Testament, and that's how they start. For in the days that the Bible's books were written, the normal way to write a letter was to sign your name at the beginning, then to state to whom the letter was addressed, and then to bring formal greetings. And so Revelation is not only apocalyptic and prophetic, but it is also a letter. It is an epistle. It is a pastoral letter written by John, quite specifically, to seven churches scattered throughout the region of Asia Minor. Accordingly, we will find that unlike apocalyptic literature, which did not make application, we are going to find, as we read Revelation, that there will be prophetic application to it, and there will be pastoral application to us as well. For this book is written by God for his servants in order that they might understand what God is doing, what God is going to do, and how they should respond and the way they should behave in the light of all that God is doing. So keep those three things in mind as you approach the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic, it is prophetic, and it is pastoral. Now, obviously, the book of Revelation, because it is full of symbolism and therefore requires a considerable amount of interpretation, has lent itself to many and varied approaches. And the way that we approach the book of Revelation will, to a very large extent, determine what we get out of it. That's a given. Our presuppositions always have an awful lot to do with the conclusions at which we arrive. Now, as far as Revelation is concerned, let me very quickly outline for you the different interpretive approaches that people have taken. The first one is what we call the preterist approach to interpretation. That approach to the book of Revelation says that the book of Revelation is all about what was happening in the first century to the church with particular reference to its struggle with the Roman Empire. It is about all that happened in the first century in this infant church as it was dealing with the enormous problems posed by the Roman Empire. Now, if that is true, it means that the book of Revelation was tremendously meaningful to one generation of Christians and fundamentally meaningless to everybody else. And we have to ask the question, why in the world then is it in the Bible at all? So I will not be approaching it from a preterist point of view. The second approach is the historicist view. 
That view treats the book of Revelation as a forecast of the whole of human history with particular relevance to what is going to happen in the Western world at the end of the age. Now, this is a very popular approach as far as many people in the Western world are concerned. They approach the book of Revelation as if it was basically written for us who live in the West in the 21st century. Well, if that is the case, then we have to ask the question, well, it would obviously be meaningful to us in the West, in the 21st century, but it has been fundamentally meaningless for 19 centuries as far as the church was concerned. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so I will not be approaching it from the historicist point of view. The third approach is the futurist approach. That says basically that apart from chapters 2 and 3 that are addressed to the churches in Asia Minor, The book of Revelation is all about the end of the world and therefore is only relevant to the people who will be living when the world comes to an end. Now, the simple fact of the matter is this. Every generation of Christians have thought they were the last one. But they have one thing in common in addition to that. They were all wrong. So the chances of this generation being the last one are not very good either. But there are many people who approach the book of Revelation from a futurist point of view. And they simply look at it and say, oh wow, this is what's happening right now. This is exactly what's going to happen next. This is what's going to happen. And and we're living in the last days and it's the last of the last days. And look out, guys, it's all going to happen very, very soon. And this approach, of course, has been popularized by many novels that many people have read and I haven't read any of them. Even though the authors of these very popular novels are personal friends. I told them I haven't read their books and they were very gracious and pointed out they hadn't read mine either. (laughs) But then there is a fourth approach to the book of Revelation. It is what we call the idealist approach. And the idealist approach says, look, this is not about actual events that took place. This is sort of dramatic, imaginative, symbolic writing about the principles whereby God operates in the world today. Well, those are the different approaches to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. The question now you're asking is, well, okay, which line are you going to take? The line I'm going to take is this, that the book of Revelation was written in the first century, in all probability, towards the end of the first century, when the Roman emperor Domitian was beginning to start an awesome time of persecution of the church. Now we've got to remember that whilst there are exciting stories in the Acts of the Apostles about the growth of the church throughout the whole Roman Empire, towards the end of the first century, the Christian church was not huge. The Christian church would be represented by many small groups of new believers meeting on their own, not, no mega churches, no, no situations where they would have all kinds of wonderful ministry. In fact, to get a better idea of what it would be like in the first century in Asia Minor, you probably need to go to some of the areas of the world in which I'm privileged to travel, where we meet with little groups of people who don't have a church building, they don't have Bibles, uh, they don't have any of the things that we take for granted, no music programs, and they are very, very often living under very difficult circumstances. That was the situation of many of the churches in the first century, and John is writing to that kind of church. They are heading for a time of very, very severe persecution. A lot of them are going to finish up dead. It is no mistake that the word witness, which in the Greek is martus, is the word for which we get martyr. Because in those days, 
But things were so rough and so tough for these small beleaguered churches that if a person dared to be a witness to Christ, there was a pretty good chance to finish up a martyr for Christ too. Now, that was the situation of the churches. As we read the letters to the seven churches, we'll see very quickly that that is very much on John's mind. That's who he is writing to. Now, this little group of believers, however, have one thing that they've been taught that they're hanging on to tenaciously. Do you know what it is? Jesus will come again. That's it. That is their hope. But as the long days have gone by, the weeks have gone into months and into years and into decades, the hope of his return is beginning to wane. Not only that, the incursion of evil and persecution and struggle and strife is beginning to build up. So hope is waning and opposition is building up. This is a beleaguered church. They are people under the gun. And what they need is a reminder or a teaching about what is going on in the world. Incidentally, you'll notice that I've called this series not what is going to happen, but I've called it what's going on which will give you a clue to my understanding of this particular book. For the book is written to that first century church to tell them a number of basic things. I'll spell them out for you. We'll keep returning to them as we go through Revelation. The first one is this. Little beleaguered churches, suffering believers, frightened, puzzled people whose hope is waning, listen All history is under God's control. That is the message, the unmistakable message of the book of Revelation. Secondly, little beleaguered church, you live in an evil world. This world is a battlefield. The struggle between good and evil is nothing new. And you are caught up in the middle of it. You have cast in your lot with the God of goodness and righteousness. Don't be surprised that evil sees you as the enemy. And don't be surprised if you're persecuted. And don't be surprised if you lay down your life for Christ. Because Christ laid down his life for you. That's the message of Revelation that comes so loudly and clearly. Thirdly, the risen, once crucified, but now triumphant Christ, seated in the glory, is central to all God's plans. Yes, he promised he would return. Yes, he will return. But right now you need to know that he is in the place of ultimate authority and he is the focal point of the grand cosmic purposes of God. Number four, evil will finally be judged and there will be a cataclysmic confrontation between God and the forces of evil. Evil will not be allowed to continue to run rampant in this world. It will not be allowed to continue to destroy all God's creation. The time will come when God will lay bare his mighty arm and in a dramatic, powerful way, he will have a confrontation with evil and he will win. Number five, beleaguered Christians living in a cruel, harsh, difficult world where to witness means that you may be a martyr. Understand this. Heaven is the ultimate reality. Heaven is the ultimate reality. And should it so happen to you that as you stand faithfully for Christ, in a world that opposes him and the worst thing that can happen would be that they would take your life you will be ushered into ultimate reality for heaven is the ultimate 
And that is where you're going. And sixthly, therefore, dear suffering, struggling Christians in small beleaguered churches, stand firm. Be faithful. Endure to the end. For God is on your side. Now, if that is the message of revelation, I don't really think there's any argument about that, I would submit to you that that is a message for the first century church and the second century church and the third century church and this century church and as many other centuries as God allows us to be here. In other words, it was a message primarily to the first century church that is relevant to all ages and is pointing all of us to the ultimate consummation of God's purposes for this earth and we know who wins. I therefore will not be applying any one system of interpretation to Revelation because I feel that is to put the book in a straight jacket. What I will be trying to do will be interpret each aspect of it under this general understanding that it's all about what is going on in the world. And what's going on in the world, quite frankly, is that God is working out his purposes. All right, that's introduction. Now then, you'll notice that I only have five points. They can only be touched on briefly, but I felt it was necessary to spend perhaps a little bit too much time explaining those things to you. The prologue, which I read to you. Notice it is all about revelation. Revelation of what? Unveiling of what? And the answer is, it is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, this can be understood two ways. It can mean, here is an explanation of who Jesus is. Or, it can mean, this is Jesus explaining everything to you. And there's a sense in which both are true. It is Jesus giving us a revelation of himself. But notice that this revelation did not start with Jesus. We are told the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So in other words, this book of Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus and where Jesus fits into God's plan that originates with God himself. God gave it to Jesus. That shouldn't be too surprising to us because over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus said, the words that I speak are not mine. They are the words that the Father has given to me. But you'll notice then that the Jesus gives the revelation to an angel. This is normative in apocalyptic literature. There are angels fluttering around all over the place. But then you'll notice that the angel gives the message of the revelation to John. But then you'll notice that John is given the revelation for the servants of God. That's you and me. So what are we looking at? We're looking at an unveiling of Jesus. A demonstration, an explanation of Jesus that originated with the Father, mediated through Jesus, given to an angel, passed on to John for the benefits of those who are the servants of the Lord Jesus. That's all part of the prologue. The second thing we notice is that this revelation deals with issues, notice, that must soon take place. It's all about things that must soon take place. That is in verse 1. And this idea is reiterated in verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, you will find that very, very often the prophets were talking about the latter times or the last days. And that idea is picked up in the beginning of the New Testament as well. You remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching, explaining the outpouring of the Spirit, and he said, this is what Joel predicted, that in the last days, God would send forth his Spirit. 
Now, in the Old Testament, they were thinking about the last days, the latter times. What was going to happen in the last days? God was going to build his kingdom. What happened when Jesus came? Jesus announced the kingdom is at hand, and he started building his kingdom. So if the latter days were the time when God would start to build his kingdom on earth, and it started when Jesus came, guess what? The last days started with the birth of Jesus. And we have been living in the last days ever since. And God has been building his kingdom. So obviously, all that he's talking about here must shortly come to pass. And it has been coming to pass for the last 2,000 years. It is a revelation of all that God has been doing through Jesus in building his kingdom. Thirdly, we are told this revelation is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, this is God speaking from his heart and articulating to his servants what they need to know about God. Now remember the people to whom it was initially written in their struggling communities, very much afraid of all that lay ahead of them. They needed a word from God. They needed to know that God was still in touch with them and still was involved in their lives. And not only that, they needed to hear from Jesus, the one that they'd heard about, the one that they had loved because he first loved them. And this purports to be a statement of God's word to their hearts. And it is a word, it is a testimony from Jesus himself to his dearly beloved disciples. The fourth thing that we notice here is that this revelation contains a special blessing for certain people. Who are they? Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy. That meant that this particular prophecy was sent to the seven churches and the leader of the church when the people were assembled, would take the letter and he would stand up and he would read it to the people. The public reading of Scripture was of profound significance in the early days of the Christian church for one very obvious reason. They didn't have Bibles and most of them couldn't have read them anyway. I believe that the public reading of Scripture is something that is sadly lacking in the contemporary church in America today. Not because people are literate, but because people are biblically illiterate. The simple fact of the matter is this. What most people who go to church in America don't know about the Bible would fill a library. And we need to make sure that in every possible way, we are putting people under the sound of the word of God. And there's a special blessing for those who will accept that responsibility of publicly reading and publicly proclaiming the word of God. But there's also a special blessing for those who hear it. Oh, by the way, there's just one other thing. And the special blessing, of course, for those who take it to heart. Special blessing for those who take it to heart. So a blessing for the one who reads it, blessing for those who hear it, a blessing for those particularly who take the message of revelation to heart. So much then for the prologue. Secondly, verses four through eight, what we call the salutation. Now I've already mentioned to you that this book of Revelation is an epistle as well as a prophetic and an apocalyptic piece of literature. How do we know it is an epistle? Because of the format. It is a letter from John to the servants of Christ in the seven churches of Asia Minor. You may remember in your reading of the Acts of the Apostles that Paul spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus teaching every day in the heat of the day in the, the school of Tyrannus. I guess that was because the school wasn't used while everybody was having a siesta. So Paul took over the school while it was empty and he had a little Bible school there. And it says the most interesting thing. 
It said that Paul taught there for a space of two years, listen, so that everybody in Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's the most incredible statement. Now, that's not the Asia that includes China and Japan and that kind of Asia. It's the Roman province of Asia Minor. It doesn't mean that literally every human being was evangelized. What it meant was that, that he trained people and then sent them out. Now, if you look on a map at the geographical location of the seven churches, you'll find that Ephesus is one of them, and the other six are in a sort of a crescent around Ephesus. Probably all the products of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the letter is sent by John to those people. Now, we can spend a lot of time talking about who this John is, because there's considerable discussion about it. I simply mentioned it to you so that you'll know that I'm aware of it, but you don't need to worry about it, because tradition has it that the book of Revelation is written by John the Apostle. But there are reasons, good reasons, for questioning that. Now, He then goes on to say, as is customary in the epistles in the New Testament, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace and peace, they were the normal traditional greetings of the day. Grace was a Greek greeting. Peace was a Hebrew greeting. The writers of the New Testament embrace those two concepts, invest them with deep spiritual meaning, and say grace and peace to you. And notice who the grace and peace that they are blessing them with will come from. They will come from, first of all, him who is and who was and who is to come. You remember Moses asking God, what is your name? You remember? And you remember what God said, that his name was I Am. And we've often talked about this, and here you have the same kind of idea, that when God says I Am, he is talking about his eternal nature, the fact that he is complete and entire in himself, uncreated, undependent, utterly totally complete in himself. He is the one who is. He is the one who was. He is the one who is to come. Grace and peace comes to these beleaguered saints in their struggling little churches about to be persecuted from none other than the eternal Father. Not only that, grace and peace comes to them from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, this is one of the first ambiguous things that we come across in the book of Revelation. This is a reference, presumably, to the Holy Spirit. And it could, when it says the seven spirits, it could refer to the seven characteristics of the Spirit explained to us in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. You can check that out if you wanted to. That could be what he means by the seven spirits. Or it could mean that as he's addressing seven churches, he is speaking to the Spirit of God who is operative in all their midst. We just frankly don't know. But the point is that the blessing of grace and peace will come from God the Father and be mediated by the Holy Spirit. But it also comes from who else? From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So this is a Trinitarian statement. The beleaguered believers need to remember that their God exists in three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice how the Son, Jesus Christ, is described faithful witness, that refers to his incarnation. For Jesus, in his incarnation, came into the world and for 33 years was a faithful witness to the invisible God. But he is the firstborn from the dead. That speaks not of his incarnation, but of his resurrection. But then it talks about him being the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that talks about his ascension and session 
to the Father's right hand. Incarnation, resurrection, ascension, and session. Or another way of looking at it, when it says that he is the faithful witness, that reminds us that Jesus is the prophet. When it says he's the firstborn from the dead, that means us, reminds us of his priestly death and resurrection. When it says that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that reminds us that he is the king. He is the prophet, priest, and king. The word Christ means anointed one. The people who were anointed in the Old Testament, you got it, were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Christ as Christ is prophet. He comes from the Father with a word from the Father to us. He is the priest. He stands on behalf of us and brings us to the Father. He is the king. He is establishing his kingdom and he rules and reigns in our hearts and he will finally rule and reign in his eternal kingdom. Listen, believers, in your little struggling churches having a rough time, there's all the grace you need and all the peace you can ever use in difficult circumstances because it comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then he says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What happens with John all the time is that he says something, he gets so excited about it that he has a little pause and he has a little doxology. He does a little bit of praising, a little bit of worshiping. And so, as he thinks of grace and peace coming from the triune God to them, he has to praise him. And notice who he talks about particularly. The one who loves us, the one who frees us, and the one who has made us. The idea of him loving us, of course, will be developed throughout the course of the book of Revelation. The idea that he has freed us from our sins harks back to the story of the Exodus. But this wonderful picture that he loves us and has freed us for a purpose comes through. He has loved us and freed us in order that he might make us. Make us what? Make us a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means that those who have embraced the love of Christ and have been freed from the consequences of their sins by his precious blood are his kingdom on earth. And it is a kingdom made up not of politicians. It is a kingdom made up not of soldiers. It is a kingdom made up of priests. Did you know you're a priest? Did you know you don't need a priest? Because you are one? And did you know that the kingdom of God is made up of redeemed men and women who function as priests, which mean that they know what it is to have immediate access to the Father through the Son and can worship Him, and at the same time, they can stand on behalf of other men and women and bring them to the Father, for that is the role of the priest. And the Apostle John wants to praise God. And he wants to remind these people that he's writing to, you are loved. You have been freed from your sins. You have been made into a kingdom of priests. Hallelujah. Amen. And then he quotes probably a a hymn that they were singing at that time. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Come on, he says to the people he's writing to, cheer up, because the day is coming when he, Christ, will return. The one who loved us, the one who freed us, the one who's made us a kingdom of priests, he will return. And at his glorious return, every eye will see him, including those who have rejected him. And those who have rejected him will feel the strength of his righteous judgment. And those who have embraced him 
will know what it is to live in grace and peace for all eternity. And as John contemplates that great day when at the return of Christ, the sheep and the goats will be divided, he says, amen, so be it. He's not being vindictive and saying, oh, that's great. Some of these guys are going to get theirs. And am I looking forward to that? No, what he's saying is this, that if God is good, and if God is righteous, and if God is just, then when Christ returns in goodness and righteousness and justice, it will mean blessing for the redeemed, and it will mean judgment for those who have rejected him. And either way, God will be seen to be good and right and just. Amen, he says. So be it. That's the salutation. Verse 9 through 11, we have the instruction. Very simple. It is, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, he's already told us about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been in the business of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus for a long time. And because of it, he is in exile on the island of Patmos. In all probability, working in a quarry there, in hard labor. He is exiled from the people to whom he's been ministering, in all probability in Ephesus and perhaps to the other places. He called himself their brother. He's a companion in their suffering. He's involved in the kingdom and he is living in patient endurance in exile. Why? Because if you're going to be part of the kingdom, there will be suffering. And if there's going to be kingdom and suffering, there is a call for faithful, patient endurance. And he says, I'm on Patmos because of my commitment to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But notice he says something else. He says, I'm on Patmos, but he also says, I'm in the Spirit. And in the Greek, the two expressions are rather similar. And they're very striking, because what he's saying is this, I'm in Patmos, which is bad, but I'm in the Spirit, which is good. And that's how Christians live. They live in situations that are often bad, but they live in those situations in the spirit, which is good. And that's where the grace and the peace comes from that enables them to live with patient endurance in those difficult times. John in the spirit on the Lord's day is told to watch, is told to listen, is told to write down what he hears and sees and to send it to the seven churches. Well, what does he see? Verses 12 through 20 tell us exactly what he saw. He saw seven golden lampstands. No problem interpreting those. Fortunately, we're told what they are. They are the seven churches in Asia Minor. Someone like the Son of Man is moving among the seven churches. The Son of Man was a favorite expression that Jesus used to describe himself in the Gospels but it is also the title of a mysterious, majestic figure in the prophecy of Daniel. And there's debate as to what exactly is intended here. Are we thinking in terms of this majestic figure in the heavenlies, who Daniel talks about, or are we talking about Jesus in his humility and his humanity? Well, I would suggest to you it's probably both. For as the description of this one moving among the seven churches goes on, we get the picture of someone wise, someone aged, someone in control, someone utterly majestic, somebody awesome and awe-inspiring. And he then says exactly who he is. He says, I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Who is John seeing in his vision? He is seeing the risen 
glorified, majestic, triumphant Jesus, the Son of Man, who holds in his hand the keys of death and Hades. If there are two things these people in these little churches are worried about, it's death and what happens to them after that. In their thinking, Hades, that mysterious realm of departed spirits. What a word of encouragement to them. For John sees the majestic Jesus moving among the churches, holding the keys of death and Hades and saying to them, don't worry about death. I've got the keys to death. Don't worry about what happens to you when you die. I'm in charge of that. I have the keys of death and Hades. And not only that, I can prove to you that I legitimately have those keys because I died once and I came back and I defeated death and I blew hell wide open and I took the sting out of the evil one and I am alive forevermore. Take heart, take courage, my dear believers, for Christ is alive. That's the message that John is bringing to the churches. And then he says, and out of his mouth is a double-edged sword. That is an expression of, the, well, you, the, the idea of a double-edged sword has found its way into our normal way we're speaking of each other. We talk about something, a double-edged sword cuts both ways. As far as the scriptures is concerned, it is a description of the cutting power of the word of God. And it works two ways. To those who will respond to the word of God, it brings blessing. To those who reject it, it brings judgment. And out of the mouth of Jesus will proceed words of blessing and words of judgment. And as he begins to speak to the seven churches in the seven letters that he dictates, we'll hear both in large measure. For out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. So the commission. What is the commission? Commission is very simple. When John sees this vision of the Lord among the churches, he is totally overwhelmed. He is totally overwhelmed. And he falls on his face before the Lord. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Just a word here about our understanding of worship. What we're going to discover in the book of Revelation is that the people are worshiping. The heavenly beings are worshiping. But let's be careful as we understand what worship means to them. For over and over again, worship is all about the awesomeness of God. It is all about a tremendous sense in the light of the awesomeness of God, of the unworthiness of man. And as a result of that, the proper posture is flat on our faces before God. There is a place for celebration. There's celebration in the book of Revelation. But celebration only belongs after we have come into the awesome presence of an awesome God and been overwhelmed with his magnificence, his majesty, and seeing in comparison our own intrinsic unworthiness and have prostrated ourselves humbly before him. And then he is able to lift us That is the idea of worship that prevails right through the Old Testament, right through the New Testament. I remember a number of years ago speaking at a conference. It was a large conference. There were a lot of of people on this speaking team, and there was a wide variety of topics that we're talking about. And and I I, I, I was listening to the other speakers, and we had a very, very powerful message on the holiness of God for the opening message. And, and we were sitting there quietly at the end of the message. And for, fortunately, they just allowed us to be quiet. I like to be quiet. I, I like to be in prayer at the end of the preaching of the word, just to allow it to soak in, just to allow it to think about it. And there, there was a, an awesome silence 
in that particular moment. And then the MC got up and, uh, and she totally broke up the whole thing. And she said, all right, now, folks, the next thing that we're going to do, we're going to get into our seminars. And the one seminar I want to particularly tell you about is all about uh, understanding what are the right colors that you should wear for your complexion, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and I remember an old pastor got up and he said, excuse me, young lady, excuse me, young lady. He said, in light of what we've just heard, I don't think any of us are interested in what color we should be wearing other than black. Because he said the only attitude that we should have as we are confronted with the holiness and the awesomeness and the majesty of God is a sense of mourning, a sense of humility. Because we are dealing with eternal issues here. It's too easy to be trivial. It's too easy to be casual. I want to tell you something. Sisters and brothers, if we start working through Revelation, there'll be no room for triviality. There'll be no room for shallowness. Because we are dealing with an awesome God who is and has been and will continue to work out his eternal purposes. Now, that doesn't mean to say we're going to be morbid at all. For John falls on his face is dead and God touches him. And he says, come on, man, stand up. I am alive forevermore. And we rejoice in a risen Savior. Well, there's more, but I guess I'll just stop because it's more than time to stop. Let's pray together. Lord, when we try to, to work through a passage of Scripture like this, it, it is really so, so dense. It, it is so packed. There is so much in it. That, that we feel like those blind men trying to, to understand what an elephant is. The one who got hold of one end and said, it's like a hosepipe. Another got hold of the other end and said, it's like a rope. Another one got hold of a leg and said, it's like a tree. And they're all right and they're all wrong. And, and our, our problem is that we try to get hold of all this and, and it's just too much. And so my prayer is simply this, that every one of us will get hold of one thing from this this evening. Everyone is to get hold of one thing. And that that one thing will get hold of us. And that we'll find as a result that in a new way we prostrate ourselves before the awesome God and we worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we find ourselves under the gun, we find ourselves troubled, we find ourselves confused, if we find that hope is waning, We find that our life is full of unanswered and perhaps even unanswerable questions. May we be reminded that there is one on the throne who's in charge, that he loves us, that he's freed us, that he's made us a kingdom of priests, that he makes grace and peace available to us, that we can live in the good of it and we can faithfully stand and endure to the glory of God. Take this home to our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.